1 Corinthians 7, the passage you just heard, it's addressing marriage, divorce, remarriage in Corinth. This is a passage that as I've studied it again the last couple of weeks, I don't know if I've gotten up uh, on a Sunday morning here and been quite this fearful for a long time. passage, I thought, how has this impacted my heart in a, in a whole bunch of different ways? Uh, fearful, tremendous responsibility and obligation in marriage to represent Jesus accurately. It's made my heart hopeful. Ah, next generation, can our teens, can our young adults have hope that God is able to help them build the kind of marriage that God has offered, designed, what he created it to be? It's made my heart thankful, thankful for Christy. 42 plus years, a lot of learning, a lot of growing, and we're still growing and learning. Very, very grateful. It's made my heart broken over marriages that I know aren't what either of them hoped they would be, thought they would be. They're stuck, they're unhappy. Is this what God designed? My heart's broken over that. My heart's angry at the world, the flesh, the devil, the impact on marriages. The devil does not play fair. Is there anyone in the room today or over in the living room who hasn't been impacted, touched by the wreckage of divorce directly or maybe indirectly through uh, friends or extended family? Does God have anything to say? Does he have anything to say to the single who wonders whether marriage is even worth the effort, to the single who longs to be married but isn't? Does he have anything to say to those who are in tough marriages, to those who have been dumped, fired by their former spouse? Does he have anything to say to those wondering, does a divorce sentence sentence them to forever being second class in God's family? Does God have anything to say to those who found fit hope and faith rekindled in a second marriage? God's design was something like this picture, man and woman to be united in contentment in marriage. Don't they look happy? I'm sure it's been airbrushed, by the way. <laughs> Our series is themed united. We're in 1 Corinthians, thinking about God's design, what what he created the body to be united. And if you'd open your Bible or your device to 1 Corinthians 7, the passage that Wally read for us, we're going to be there this morning. There's always been a tension, a tension between God's good creational intent, what he said Genesis 2 marriage was going to be a man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, the two will become one flesh. There's always been a tension between God's good creational intent and then the, the brokenness of sin in husbands and wives and why doesn't marriage ever quite match up to the intent. The tension was there in Genesis 3. Uh, Adam, as far as we know from the text, is standing by while Eve disobeys and brings sin into creation. Wait a minute, that's not what God designed. The tension was there in Deuteronomy 24. By the time we get to Deuteronomy 24, uh, it's giving the Israelites principles on uh, how to handle divorce and remarriage. Wait a minute, God's designed Genesis 2. We're already at the point where we're saying uh, a man can divorce his wife if he's, quote, displeased with her. 
The tension was there centuries later in Jesus' day. The disciples came and asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? We get the account in Matthew chapter 19. His answer, he pointed them back. You're living now in the brokenness, but God's original design was Genesis 2. The tension is evident in our day. Between God's intent for marriage, one man, one woman, in lifelong, committed, covenant, relationship, love with each other, and what we've got now. A culture of cohabitation. Uh, dump one spouse to upgrade to another. Easier to get a divorce than it is to get a mortgage. The question, uh, this passage begs, how do you live in a way, how do you build a marriage in a way, how do you seek a marriage in a way that is going to honor God's design in a sin-broken, you know, there's no verse to fit this, reality. Uh, the context should sound familiar. First century, Roman culture was going through a time of social change and sexual revolution. Sound familiar? And what we've learned already, uh, quick review, first four chapters of the letter, all about division, factions. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, how they were disunited. And then chapters five and six, dealing with the problems of morality in the churches in Corinth. And, and, and we talked about that the last couple of weeks. Run, flee from immorality. That's not God's design for you. Now, chapter 7, the first few words. Now for the matters you wrote about. From here, 7 1, on through the rest of the letter, Paul is answering questions that the Corinthians have sent to him. We don't have the list of their original questions. We do have his answers to their questions. And so you can infer backward, well, what did they ask? And here in chapter 7, it's fair to assume they had asked him about singleness and marriage. Is it better to marry or stay single? Uh, what if I'm in a mixed faith marriage? I'm a believer. My spouse isn't. What am I supposed to do? And what's a believing spouse to do if an unbelieving spouse bails out, divorces them? Now what? Those were their questions, we think. And we know that from the way he answered them. His first uh, question he's answering is, uh, should I marry or stay single? Which is better? And so verse 1, right away he answers, it's good for a man not to marry. Single is not second class. He's going to come back to this next week, we'll look at it, later in chapter 7, with the advantages of singleness. There was some kind of crisis going on in Corinth. Verse 26 of this chapter tells us, because of the present crisis, I think singleness is a good idea. There was something going on. Most think persecution against the churches uh, that is causing him to say, nope, you stay focused on Jesus. You don't need the distraction of marriage. You notice if you've got a footnote at the bottom of your Bible, mine has, uh, mine has the translation, it's good for man not to marry. Uh, it's good for man not to touch a woman. Touch was a Greek euphemism for have sex with a woman. And my footnote has quotes around it. Some think this is a quote, a slogan that was going around in Corinth. It's good not to touch a woman. Uh, and that there was an element even in the, the church that was saying celibacy is good even if you're married. So they're asking Paul, is that the case? Uh, should we marry or stay single? And his answer, there are real advantages to 
singleness. But is Paul anti-marriage? Doubtful. Uh, all the rabbinical teaching of the day was pro-marriage. In fact, most Jewish men, it was considered an obligation, a duty to marry. So is he saying marriage is bad? No, but there's some advantage. More on that next week. Single is not second class. And right away in verse 2 then, he says, but marriage is good. It's helpful for purity in a centrally obsessed culture. Then in Corinth or here now. Uh, he says, because of the prevalence of so much immorality, the word's plural, so many immoralities, each one should marry. The prevalence of immorality then as now meant they might be tempted if they remain single. Remember, Corinth was known for its immorality. It was the Las Vegas of its day. So he says, because there's so much immorality, each one should have a spouse. Here's the way that Al Mohler says it. He says, unless you have the gift of celibacy, you are called by God to forego sexual pleasure for a lifetime in order to devote yourself to God. Unless that is you, God's will for you is to marry. Ooh. And then he speaks, stronger than anyone else in the culture right now, about what's going on in the church. He addresses the delaying of marriage. He says the problem of delaying marriage. Uh, it's a quote, the sin of sloth has invaded the church on the issue of marriage. Why? Because even believers now, it's, I want to travel first. I want to get out of debt first. I want to get that, my act together first. I want to play the field first. I want to have fun first. Then I'll get around to thinking about marriage. So the average age now is 29 for men. For women, it's between 26 and 27. And Moeller's point is the issue of immorality. It says when puberty was 15 or 16, and most folks got married at 18, 19, maybe 20, you had an issue of control and purity for three or four years until God's design in marriage. Now puberty hits at 13 and marriage hits at 29. What goes on during those 16 years? His point is, not much that's good. He's careful. He says, I'm not saying run out and get married. I think Muller's saying the same thing that Paul's saying in verse 2. Because there is so much out there, uh, you want to stay on the path of purity. And God's design for that in terms of sexuality is within marriage. He says, uh, there's no biblical category of enduring singleness apart from the gift of celibacy and that for the purpose of devotion to God. And yet we see it in our culture more and more and more to where marriage now is an option. Cohabitation much more popular. Hmm. Feel the tension between God's good creational intent and the brokenness of men and women because of sin. He goes right away into verse 3, 3, 4, and 5, as blunt and bold as any passage on, of Scripture dealing with sex within marriage. Sex is a marital duty. He calls it an obligation. Meeting the sexual needs of your spouse within the bounds of marriage per God's design is a marital duty. One person said a husband and wife should have sex often enough so that neither is frustrated or tempted to cheat on the other. Uh, he's addressing these verses to whatever was going on in Corinth of pro-celibacy. Good idea, even if you're married, don't touch her. I think that's a bad idea. So did God. To stop 
depriving or defrauding because it's the issue of ownership. Once you're married, I don't have authority over my own body anymore. Christy does. She doesn't have authority over hers. I do. Ooh, can that be abused? You bet. Is that God's design? No. The abuse isn't God's design. So he says, stop depriving each other. The issue today isn't so much uh, that as it is seeing sex as dirty because there's uh, so much sexual baggage from decisions in the past. There's so much pain because of the sexual abuse in the past that instead uh, sex is tainted even within marriage. That's the struggle today. These verses are about understanding the role of sex in marriage. It's not a bribe. It's not a reward for good behavior. It's not withholding it isn't an appropriate punishment in a marriage. Stop depriving. He says the only exception is the end of verse 5. A couple can choose to abstain for a time for a, a spiritual purpose, devote themselves to prayer. But even then, it's short term. It's for a time, and then they're to come back together. Point is, physically come back together sexually so that there's no opportunity for Satan to use frustration or temptation. Satan uses unfulfilled sexual desires for his purposes. That includes destroying a marriage. Then he says about all of this, uh, the end of the paragraph, verses 6 and 7, this is advice, not a command. The, the advice on here's how to handle your, your marriage because his personal stance, his status is he is single. And he says, I, I think there are advantages to that and I wish you were like me, but everyone, not everyone has the gift of singleness. And so the rest of the passage is him giving advice. Verses to three different groups. Advice about marriage, divorce, remarriage. He's answering their questions to three different groups. Verse 8, he addresses those who are unmarried and the widows. Verse 10, to the married. Verse 12, to the rest. And his first group is this group, the unmarried and the widows. That might mean widowers and widows, that he's addressing specifically those who have been married are now either widows, widowers, or divorced. Sex has been part of life in the past. It isn't now. Or he may be addressing single and widows. Well, where are the widowers? I think this is addressing widowers and widows. And he says to them, it's good to stay unmarried like me, maybe because of the crisis, verse 26. Uh, but he says, even then, it's the same contrast between verses 1 and 2 that he does here in verses 8 and 9. Good to stay single? Yep. But uh, if control of yourself, if purity is difficult, then better to marry than to burn with passion. Strong word here, pyro. Don't be inflamed. Don't allow the temptation and the physical struggle to take you to spots spiritually that you shouldn't be. Better to remarry. That's his advice to that group. And then he shifts into the other two groups dealing with, I think the Corinthians wrote and said, should we stay married or uh, divorce? If things are bad, what should we do? And so he says, to the married. 
Verse 10, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. What's he mean? Not I, but the Lord. Well, the Lord gave commands. He's saying, he's assuming they know, because he taught them earlier, they, they know what Jesus said. Matthew chapter 19, Mark chapter 10. The Lord has already spoken about what should happen. He's addressing uh, marriages where both are believers. He says, Jesus has already told you. But here, here's my advice to the married I give this command, a wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. And these verses, leave, separate, divorce, are all used interchangeably. No difference in those words. There were some legal differences in Roman culture. Uh, a man could divorce his wife. A woman couldn't divorce. She didn't have legal authority. Different now, obviously. And his vice is, don't leave, don't separate, don't divorce. If you do, same thing Jesus said in Matthew 19, remain unmarried or be reconciled. Uh, change, come back together, repair. One of Satan's most common lies. Better to be uh, happily divorced than unhappily married. A lie. Why? Be because there's too much loss that comes with the destruction of a marriage. Loss, uh, one person said divorce is a multi-layered string of losses. Loss of companionship, loss of security, loss of family, loss of traditions brings a stigma, a sense of failure. I've heard my mom talk about this over the years. Mid-70s when she divorced, she felt like she had a big scarlet D written on her chest. Stigma, sense of failure, brings incredible pain and heartache to the divorcee and to the children. The secular sociologists say all children of divorce are at risk, higher levels of anxiety. They fear they can't uh, make and keep uh, lasting friendships. They fear their own relationships in the future are going to fail. One survey came up with the data. They've been able now over the last 20 years to do longitudinal studies and look at children of divorce. They've said over the last 20 years, 90% uh, of children of divorce go through shock, trauma, high levels of anxiety, fear, the struggles that go with it. Uh, divorce is a multi-layered series of losses. So it's a lie to say better to be happily divorced than unhappily married for the divorcee and for the kids. Uh, that survey said, uh, that study came up with the data that uh, children of divorce were more dissatisfied and struggling more five years after the divorce than they were immediately after it. So the lie of, well, they'll get over it, they're resilient. The data now is, nope. Now, the good news is, God promises mercy and grace. I'm a child of divorce. Am I shaped by it? Uh-huh. Am I a lifelong victim of it? No way. God's grace and mercy. Hebrews 4 says it's there for us. We come to him and find it. God has made me and can make you a more forgiving, compassionate, dependent on him person because of broken marriage of your parents or your own struggles. He can make you a more forgiving, compassionate, 
and dependent on him person. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12's great promise. In our weakness, God's strength is made perfect. He offers his strength in the midst of the wreckage. His grace is greater than whatever uh, sin your spouse has committed against you. His grace is greater than whatever you have done to blow up or cause troubles in your marriage. His grace is greater. Stay married or divorce? Well, till the married says, stay. Stay. Divorce is used by Satan, the father of lies, to imprint a different identity on than the one that God has offered in Jesus. So my folks in uh, struggling marriages and divorce, after divorce, will say, I'm damaged goods. I'm a failure. I'm a reject. My spouse fired me. I'll never get past the sense of failure that I feel. I'm never going to be whole again. What do we do? We reject the lies. God offers peace in the midst of the regret and the brokenness. He, the scriptures tell us, binds up the brokenhearted. He's ready to forgive your sin. He's ready to forgive, help you forgive your ex's sin against you. That's why we need the gospel. If you get nothing else this morning, a, a marriage has to be built on Jesus. Well, what do I do after uh, I'm divorced? Your life's got to be built on Jesus. How do I go and pick up the pieces? You've got to have Jesus. His grace and his great grace is bigger than whatever's gone on in the past, whatever you're dealing with with picking up the pieces. My dad did not know Jesus. After the divorce, he never managed to pick up the pieces of his life. The remaining 15 years were a downward spiral, and he was a wreck of a man at the end. Without Jesus, you can't put the pieces back together. With Jesus, there's hope, and there is transformation, and there is new beginning, and there is forgiveness. We've got to have Jesus. That's why the gospel is so important. Do you know him? What's the church's role with uh, marriage, divorce, remarriage, in in the midst of this tension between what God designed and, and the reality that we see? The church should be the most confrontational in your face. Don't you dare give up on your marriage. I know you made a lifelong covenant commitment. We're going to help you stick to it. Place in the world. Probably these days the only place in the world that's going to say that to anyone. You've heard Kip talk often about the church isn't an auto showroom. It's a repair shop. That's true for our marriages. The church, especially in a life group, or with a prayer partner, the church, that has to be the place to be transparent about the junk in our marriages. For the purpose of repairing them and doing the work of repenting and forgiving and rebuilding and building on Jesus. If not here, where? We've got to deal with what's really going on in our marriages. But there's something about this area that we love to hide. Uh, there's uh, one in speaking team this week said, there's a unique shame that we carry about marital struggle and marital failure. Other areas we'll talk about. But we're uniquely ashamed that we can't deal with our own marital struggles. So we end up hiding 
and we carry on disunited. No, no, fight for your marriage. Open up, ask for help. The church has to be the most confrontive in your face, come alongside you, fight for your marriage place. The church also has to be the most grace-giving, encourage the brokenhearted place in the world. Those who've experienced divorce, those who've failed in a marriage, those who've been abandoned or traded in by a spouse, the church is the only spot to offer a new picture of what marriage is supposed to be, what God designed it to be, to, to shine the light on that picture, to point to the power and forgiveness of Jesus, the only one that's able to rebuild a broken life, the only one who is able to shield and heal the hearts of children scarred by their parents' conflicts and divorce, the only one who can give hope after the devastation of a divorce. The church has to be both an in-your-face place and a loving, forgiving, grace-showing place. He, uh, in verse 12, shifts to his advice to the third group. Stay married or divorce? Well, he says, to the rest. To the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord. What's he to the rest is those in mixed marriages, mixed faith marriages. One's a believer, the other isn't. I say this, not the Lord. What's he mean? Jesus never spoke about mixed marriages. His day, it was Jew and Jew. That was it. Uh, so this was new, but in Corinth, there are mixed faith marriages. Remember, he's there for 18 months sharing the gospel. It's been three years since he left, four and a half years of the gospel being shared and impacting people. There were marriages now that had been both pagan, and now one was a follower of Jesus and the other wasn't yet. What are we to do? What's that believing spouse supposed to do? That's the question that Paul is answering. Should I stay with an unbelieving spouse? If so, why? And his answer is verses 12 and 13. Don't divorce an unbelieving spouse who's willing to stay with you. Don't put them away. Don't forsake them. Don't send them away. If they are pleased, they assent to being with you, good. You stick with the marriage. Why? Because there's an impact spiritually on the rest of the family by having even one believer there. That's the point of the holiness of the children. When you get to verse 14, talking about the, the sanctification of the family, what Paul is saying is that the believers to try to keep the mixed marriage together in the hope that the testimony of even one believer in the family is going to make an impact and be used by God to bring the unbelieving spouse to faith. There is a spin-off. One person said it's a spin-off blessing for the unsaved spouse and the children if there is even one spouse seeking Jesus. So stay. But verse 15 then takes us to the, well, what if that believing spouse can't control it and the unbelieving spouse isn't willing and doesn't want to stay? Now what? And so it raises the issue of abandonment, desertion. The unbelieving spouse leaves Divorces the believing spouse, now what? Divorce or remarriage? It raises all the questions about divorce and remarriage. Now what do I do? Uh, you let him go. Verse 15, why? Two reasons he gives in verse 15. Because the believing spouse is not bound 
That same word appears later in the chapter. It's also used in Romans 7. It's a strong word. You are not a slave. You are not in chains. You are not in bondage. Let them go because, second reason, God's called you to live in peace. In peace. Let them go. Does that mean that the believing spouse that's now been abandoned, been divorced, is free to remarry? Text isn't clear, but I go at it backwards. If Paul wanted to say, after that kind of divorce, that believing spouse who's been abandoned should stay single, he would have been a whole lot more clear about it than he is. And we know about the cultures that uh, in the case of adultery, sexual sin that hasn't been confessed, both for the Jewish mindset and legal system and the Roman mindset, uh, if there was divorce for sexual reasons, then remarriage was assumed and legal. Hmm. Why isn't the text more clear? Uh, we know that in Jewish and Greco-Roman circles, uh, remarriage was universally granted to the legally divorced. Still not as clear as we wanted, is it? Hmm. Divorce and remarriage. Uh, folks talk about biblical divorce, and usually there are two qualifications of biblical divorce. This is one of them. Verse 15 is where folks uh, look at it and say, if there's abandonment or desertion, that's one of the reasons that you now have a biblical ground for divorce. The other one, Matthew chapter 19, is adultery. Uh, I take that as continued unrepentant sexual sin by a spouse. What is it about that sexual sin? What is it about desertion? What do they have in common that make divorce permissible? They've blown up God's design. Adultery means the one flesh union of husband and wife. And uh, desertion means you're going to come and be joined to your wife. They're now apart. There's something about those two things that uh, God's word speaks differently than in other circumstances. So divorce and remarriage. Uh, most of the questions are easy to answer. Your sermon outline has on the back the whole set of, here are the passages, the primary passages in Scripture that every believer goes to for divorce and remarriage questions. But there is an agreement on them. Most of the questions are easy to answer. Uh, my spouse died. A am I permitted to remarry? Yes, the Scripture is clear. Uh, Matthew 19 is clear. Uh, I've divorced without biblical grounds. Am I allowed to remarry? Scripture is clear. Nope. Uh, a believer divorces another believer without biblical grounds. Verses 10 and 11, is that clear? What should they do? It's clear. Stay unmarried or reconcile. And we know in our guts, we've heard the, well, I know God wants me to be happy, so we're going to divorce. So we've fallen out of love. Or uh, I, need to, I need to do this for the sake of my kids. All my friends tell me I deserve better. I just married the wrong person. We've both changed. And in our guts, we know 
Really? Is that what God designed? So most of the questions on divorce and remarriage are easy. Then why does it become so difficult and messy and confusing? Several reasons. Most of the situations don't fit a verse. So I said at the beginning, we've got this, there's no verse for this reality. What do I do? Here's one uh, fictional setting that one person wrote. You tell me. Uh, made up names. Stephanie is 23 years old. She's been married for two years to her husband, Chris. She has a 16-month-old toddler. While Chris had professed to be a Christian before they were married, he seemed to lose interest in Stephanie and in church attendance after Bradley, the, the toddler, was born. Finally, it came out that Chris was having an affair with a female co-worker. When Stephanie confronted Chris, he became angry and violent with her and threatened to hurt both her and the toddler. She called the police who forced Chris to move out. He then moved in with his female co-worker. Chris refuses to speak to anyone from the church and no longer claims to be a Christian. How do you advise Stephanie about her options? May she initiate divorce proceedings against Chris? Or must she wait for him to divorce her? If they divorce, is she free to remarry? Or must she wait until Chris marries, which may never happen if he chooses simply to go on cohabiting with his girlfriend? Or must she wait until Chris dies before she can remarry? What does Scripture really have to say for her situation? Why are divorce and remarriage situations so messy and confusing? Because I don't have a verse to fit this. Okay, well, a believe, unbelieving spouse leaves a believing spouse. Let him go. Let her go. That's clear. That, isn't, that story isn't clear. What's Stephanie supposed to do? Why are they so messy and confusing? Because we want to follow God's word, but the, the cultural situation, um, Rome had four different kinds of marriage. So you're a slave, and your master says, here, marry another slave because I want slave babies from the two of you. And one becomes a believer and is stuck now in this marriage and this sexual relationship with the other slave. What's that believing slave supposed to do? Got a verse for that? So which of the four kinds of marriage is Paul addressing here? Which is why we need Jesus. And anything with marriage, divorce, remarriage, it's got to be built on him. We've got to seek his face. And we've got to be willing to love and show grace and confront through the messiness. Uh, the reason it also gets very complicated, in my experience talking to people, uh, by the time they come asking me about remarriage, they're already in love with somebody else and haven't looked at any of the scripture passages. And so the, the, the whole thing of uh, the idea that I'm going to remain unmarried or wait to be reconciled seems so unreasonable to them because they're, they're already in love with somebody else. Which is why it we have to go to the word and we have to know what it says and we have to go back to, instead of, the brokenness and the mess. What's God's design? What's he have for me? Does he have something to say about this? He sure does. There are four camps when it comes to divorce and remarriage. These are people who love Jesus, are following Jesus, love his word. They fall into four camps on the topic. One is neither divorce nor remarriage is ever permitted. God says once married, always married. He sees you as eternally married. Who cares what the legal paperwork says? Another camp says divorce is at times permitted, but never remarriage. 
It's related to the first camp. Third camp, divorce and remarriage are okay in cases of adultery or desertion. Matthew 19, 1 Corinthians 7. And the fourth camp is, come on, we've got to get more realistic with the culture today, and divorce and remarriage are okay in a variety of situations. You've got to take it case by case. All these folks love Jesus and want to obey his word. We need him, don't we? To love people well. What's our church's stand? Uh, our policies are all in category three, camp three on that list. Yep, like the word says, adultery and desertion are different categories than everything else. Our church has come a long, long way. We've always had a strong conviction about the purpose and design of marriage. We've always held up the sanctity of marriage. We're learning and growing and figuring out how to interact with help and impact the half of our culture who have broken marriages, step families, and need Jesus. They want Jesus in their lives, in their second or third marriage. They want Jesus in their step family. We're figuring out what does that look like to love and minister and point them to Jesus. We used to treat divorce as untouchable. Divorce and remarriage are out there somewhere, but let's keep our distance so that we can say we believe in God's original design for marriage. We sure do. I'm so thankful we no longer think we need to keep our distance. Hold to a strong view of marriage? Yep. That's why we insist on premarital counseling. Every couple being married, that's why every pastor and our counseling team do marriage counseling. Hate divorce like God says he does? Yes. Because it leaves a trail of wreckage. We see the scarring. We understand. At least a bit. But no more of treating divorce as unpardonable and divorcees as untouchable. Love, encourage, and disciple those who have been divorced and remarried? Yes. Yes. See, there's always been this tension between what God designed in the first place Leave, be joined, become one flesh. Genesis chapter 2. There's always been a tension between his good creation intent and what we've got because of the brokenness of sin in men and women today. And we're going to live in that tension seeking Jesus.